WFBS. Radio 2. Sit with Christopher Lee. Hello there. Do you hear that? Flaming lips at Glastonbury. Where else would they be? Anyway, welcome to the Sit Rep Roundtable, your defence and global affairs discussion magazine. In the next hour, the defence debate. Sterile? Or maybe virile. And why are there thousands of ex-service personnel in prison? Now, there's an election. What can you and can't you say to the press? Why, the Americans are quitting Death Valley. Kyrgyzstan, the next honeypot for worker terrorists. Israeli terrorist alert in Sinai. Why is that? And what's this vision thing? Who had it? Who has it? Who needs it? And should we like Russia? And do they like us? And who remembers? Don't know much about history. Well, this week, BFBS Forces News has been quizzing the three main parties on what they can promise for Britain's military. The Defence Secretary, Bob Ainsworth, he stays Defence Secretary uh, during the election run-up. But the other two guys, the Lib Dem, Paul Keach, and Tory, Liam Fox, they're the spokesmen. Um, they're, not in, they're not MPs any longer. But they took part in the BFBS Forces News Defence Debate this week at the National Army Museum in London. Some of the arguments were straight out of that museum, the Museum of Political Speech-Making, and could have been heard almost any time since Balaclava in 1854. Well, the real debate came in the welfare section. Everyone wanted service people first, but all admitted that even wounded and long-term recovering personnel were victims of budgets. Here's Jamie Gordon. During the 30-minute debate, the three spokesmen took questions from an invited audience of serving and ex-service personnel, their families and community support agencies. Under the topic of the military covenant, welfare was a major issue, and Major General Andrew Cumming, the chief executive of SAFA, started the debate. What assurances can you on the panel give us um, that the need uh, for their support uh, will fit in to the long-term plans in what is essentially an organisation, future governments which are essentially fairly short-term affairs. Defence Secretary Bob Ainsworth was the first to respond, stating the Labour case to make welfare a matter of law. If we enshrine the kind of rights that we've given to them over the last couple of years in law, so when uh, you know, Afghanistan, the operation is finished, when you know, the media attention you know, moves on to other things, governments can never walk away. Uh, from that commitment. In their manifesto, the Tories have made specific pledges in terms of military welfare, and Dr Liam Fox, the Shadow Defence Secretary, highlighted a main concern for the Conservatives. You know, it's a widely quoted figure that when we lost 255 active service personnel in the Falklands War, but we've had more Falklands Ooh. veterans commit suicide. If you extrapolate that figure through the first Gulf War, Iraq, Afghanistan, I think that we have a potential mental health time bomb that we need to deal with. The Liberal Democrat defence spokesman Paul Keach echoed the Labour pledge to make the provision of care for ex-servicemen and women a matter of law. It would also ensure that other agencies, not just central government, other agencies in our society had to take account of it as well. Local housing associations, local housing authorities, National Health Service, etc, etc, etc. So on the welfare issue at least, there is broad agreement and a commitment to help ex-servicemen and women deal with their mental and physical injuries. But what perhaps wasn't made clear during the debate was how this would be funded, and whoever wins the election in three weeks' time will have to do the math to ensure that those who've served are looked after for the rest of their lives. Jamie Gordon, reporting for Jamie, thank you very much. Now, with me at the SITREP Roundtable from the University of Salford, the head of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies, Professor Eric Grove, from Global Radio News, their chief foreign correspondent, Christopher Walker, (coughs) and from University College London, the global affairs analyst at that place, Dr Martin McCauley. 
I was intrigued at that um, news debate that the first question was from General Sir Mike Jackson, the former CGS. Um, he asked the question we've been asking for two weeks here on SITREV, is defence a big enough public issue to be an election issue, uh, Eric Grove? Well, it's a big issue, but there seems to be a relative consensus about it. I mean, the only major issue uh, is, the, is, is that the Liberal Democrats don't want to continue with Trident. But apart from that, there's nothing specific between the three major parties. There does seem to be a general consensus that Britain should continue to play some kind of global role. There might be possibilities for debate about how we do it, but nothing specific has been said. So it's a big issue, but it's one that's not being addressed. Martin McCauley. You get it from a very small parties, the Green parties and others would, would withdraw immediately from Afghanistan, but then not really serious uh, contestants. So I think it's one of those items which are regarded as too sensitive because men are dying, fighting and dying at present, and no party wants to say something which would, uh, in fact, make the situation worse or cause grief. Or to the service to the families and the loved ones at home. They don't. Or give an impression that maybe they they weren't supporting those loved ones and the guys that are fighting. That would be disastrous, and they want basically to keep uh, defence out of the election. Yeah, um, um, Christopher Walker. This is why um, there was no big idea there, but this is why I suspect that welfare of the individuals, not just serving, but after they've left the services. That is really the sort of thing that would appeal to the public. It's a very potent question and issue. I quite, uh, you know, share your views on that. But who's going to bring it up? Uh, there was an, an article, a very moving article in the Sunday Times Colour magazine about one of these fighters who ended up in prison. Very moving. But <coughs> frankly, I, I don't think any of the three main parties are going to bring that up. It's too... It's in any way, they'd only bring it up in the same way that in uh, the beginning of Prime Minister's questions, they always say the same roughly phrases about their sorrows when there's a death of a soldier. Yeah, I think, I think in the, I mean, for example, I think in the, in, in the Labour Party manifesto, there is mention of this. In fact, they all well, touch on it, but uh, give me the detail. Yes, exactly. And don't forget that what they won't tell us, which is far more important, is that any detail really of how they're going to cut the massive deficit all we know is that certain parties have ring fenced certain issues and that's certainly not one of them that anybody's <coughs> mentioned so far as being ring fenced yeah. Martin McCauley this is reminiscent of Lord George's promise and we're talking there when 1919 yeah. homes for heroes jobs for heroes and so on he made a lot of that and it played a role in the election and so on, and got them re-elected and so on. But they were all destitute. Did, did they live up to the promises? But a point. No. That, but a point actually, which came to mind just sort of, just sort of um, listening to this, is that the numbers we're talking about now are actually quite trivial compared to the numbers of ex-servicemen we were talking about at the end of the First World War or the end of the Go Second on, World tell War. Tell us the figures. Or, you I haven't got them. But it was just it was just a totally different order of order of magnitude. We do seem to have a problem. And it's a social problem of people settling back into 21st century society having been on active service. It's a social and a cultural problem. It needs attention. But I suspect all three parties think that he ought to get it. Yes. Well, I mean, what, what, something else which is interesting, and there was uh, um, sitting next to me at that uh, debate, but didn't get his question in, was Brigadier Robin Bacon. Now, he's the chief of staff of the Soldiers' Charity, which used to be the Army Benevolent Fund. Um, your question was very much about, uh, Robin, was very much about people in prison. Yes, it was, yes. 
Um, my point on, on those being in prison was, uh, as was pointed out by one of your previous speakers in the Sunday Times article here at Zero, there are a shockingly large number of ex-servicemen in prison. And if you take the, the army, MO, sorry, if you take the MOD figures, they say that about 3% of the prison population are behind bars uh, are ex-servicemen. The National Association of, Association of Probation Officers say it's 8%. And really the truth is probably somewhere between the two. But do we want, do we, Sorry, can you may interrupt? Do we know what numbers we're talking about then? We're talking, we're talking somewhere in the region of about 5,000 out of a population of 92,000. That's the largest um, occupational group behind bars in this country. And it's about half the force that's in Afghanistan in yeah. terms of numbers. I'm not sure that sort of accounts for much, but it puts it in, in perspective because one of the problems is that if, I was saying earlier to Christopher Walker, if you're going to have a defence debate during the election, and General Mike Jackson didn't seem to think there would be, um, it's this sort of thing about personnel. These are shocking figures. Somebody gave me one the other day that something like a 1,000 uh, ex-service people are on the streets living rough in London. That figure has, has come down over, over time. It's been something that's running for a very, very long time um, in terms of homelessness. But we, collectively, the charities, especially uh, Veterans Aid, uh, have really done a huge amount to tackle this uh, issue. But it's not going to go away. It's multifaceted. It's very complex in terms of why people end up... I was, look, I was looking at something, I mean, with, with your charity, the Soldiers' Charity. Um, it was, th it was saying there was a 30% year-on-year rise from ex-soldiers who need help. That is enormous. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, it, despite the numbers of it in the Army uh, coming down, we are the, the principal charity for the Army and for former soldiers and their families, and the cases become more complex, they become more expensive, and it's not just the case of what we used to have, you know, helping with mobility aids and so on, that they, they become quite multifaceted, uh, and it's not... Uh, it's also... You know, we have the other issues like the Gurkhas coming from Nepal thinking the pavements are, are paved with gold and they're not. We have a help, helping them as well. So we're in a position at the moment where we're desperately trying to, to keep up and grow to be able to cope with these very large numbers of cases that, that we're dealing with. Do you think the public's cottoned on to this? I'm not sure they have. Uh, well, the, the, the public certainly have sympathy for us. And now we rebranded... Um, a couple of months ago. What, from the are, Army Benevolent Fund? Yes. I mean, Why did you the, have to do that, by the way? Well, the term benevolence was, was not widely understood, and we needed to evolve and keep up with the times. And we had been the principal soldiers' charity for the last 66 years, but a lot of people just didn't really realise it. But now we've got the soldiers' charity on the tin, all of a sudden people really do understand, and, and the public and our own people and, and soldiers. So it's been, uh, it's very, very encouraging feedback we're getting from having rebranded and it'll help us move forward. Yeah, you see, this is the point I'm getting at, uh, and that we can talk about carriers and we can talk about Trident, etc. Um, when you've got soldiers, the soldiers' charity on the tin, as you put it, people say, oh, yes, that I understand. Now, what I can't understand is why uh, that bit of defence, and it is defence for the next 20 years for an individual coming out of the services today, we may have to help that individual for the next, well, the rest of his life or her life. Why that isn't a defence debate within the general election? That's a very good question. Um, but it's one where I think, from my experience of having been inside the MOD itself, um, in the past, it's where it's considered, oh, is this within our remit or is it the remit of other government departments? And it's trying to stitch these all together 
and is it the responsibility of society and it's it's that multifaceted aspect of, of, of these issues where no one wants to take overall responsibility yeah well you see i mean what do we have yesterday we had uh, lord ramsbottom um uh, general david ramsbottom now or was uh, saying he reckons that the Minister for the Veterans, for example, ought to come out as being a Minister of State within the MOD. He ought to be in the Cabinet where he can get his his, his hands on the other departments because everybody thinks, oh, well, somebody else will do it, and nobody does. I have to say that he makes a very good point, and in other large countries, uh, allies and so on, they, they do the very same thing. Uh, the Australians have a Minister for Veterans... Uh, and it works very well for them. You're going to need. You're going to have to double your income. You were saying um, by what 2015. That yeah. is the size of the problem, isn't it? You need to double your income. Absolutely. I mean, if, if we don't, we just won't be able to keep up with the complexity of the cases. But we are fortunate at the moment. There's there's fantastic public support for the service charities ourselves, Help for Heroes, SAFA, the British Legion, and, and so on. And we're working very closely together um, in tr- taking forward as many initiatives as we can you know, to help. You know, the former service population. Right. Where do we find out more about what you're doing? How do we get to it on, on, on the internet, for example? We have a website, uh, www.soldierscharity.org. Is that Soldiers Charity one word? Yes, it is, yeah, no spaces. Okay. Um, plenty of spaces for money, though. I tell you what, thank you very much, Robin Bacon, You're of the Soldiers the Charity. Um, Chris, could I just yes, point out, I mean, a, a glaring example of, say, in France, until recently, I think even now, uh, people who were wounded in the war got a special sign where they could put in the front of their car, and they were allowed to park rather like diplomats, you know, on yellow lines and such, like near shops. I mean, that was just something concrete that could be done. Our people get do nothing, and I think the other thing they do is pass the buck to the charities. I think the, this is true. But you see, I mean, can I come, come back to the thing that Robin Baker was talking about there? Um, and that is that if you've got a minister, and, and David Ramsbottom <coughs> is talking about, if you get a minister and you stick that minister in the cabinet and you say to him, right, I have got that rank, it means something, which means mm. I've got an office. Um, well, Ramsbottom would make a very good one himself. Well, he, he was, except the government gave him the heave didn't he, when he was inspector of prisons. <laughs> Yeah, uh, because he No, but on this him. topic, I think there is public sympathy. What you keep asking is why isn't it being yeah. debated? But it's that nobody's stirring it up. You need some figurehead like Joanna Lumley stirred the Gurkha issue up into an absolute mega issue. Can you imagine any political party appointing Joanna Lumley? I think Joanna Lumley should be... Should be <laughs> well, she, should, she got more votes to be Prime trouble, Minister than trou- any other candidate. The trouble is you'd be going into a sponge because everybody would say, of course we should spend more on ex-servicemen, of but course we should do this. we're not going to because we want our local hospital. Or whatever, yeah. yes. The, Martin, the seriously. The thing that struck me is quite astonishing is that the modern military is very technical with men coming out of it, presumably with technical skills, but yet they don't go into industry. They don't find jobs in industry, uh, possibly because manufacturing in this country is only 13% of, uh, of GDP. Mm. But what is needed is an interim house which will take the men and say, what are your skills, and so on, technical and otherwise, and then say, what does the civilian economy need, and therefore match the two, instead of just dumping uh, the soldier onto the street and say, right, it's over to you. I think well, let's, let's be fair, Bob Ainsworth, the Defence Secretary, he was saying in the, in, in, in the debate on BFPS uh, News yesterday, listen, he said, the people that we've got, for example, serving in Afghanistan are brilliant people. They're not dimbos by any means. And you get a 19, 20-year-old 
taking decisions that no 19, 20-year-old who's sitting in Reading or somewhere like that would even figure out how... Now, how do you sell that to industry? It not only is got to find a job first, you know, two and a half million new jobs, and half of them says uh, the government admits uh, sort of uh, people who are coming into the country. But how do you sell that to industry, uh, Martin? Because if you do, you're going to have a more efficient industry. Yes, because these people have uh, self-respect. They're decision makers, and they are old beyond their years. They have experience beyond their years. Years, so therefore, it should be possible to move them into positions, uh, because if you look at the two million jobs created by Labour uh, since 1997, one million has gone to immigrants, and these people could replace them. But it's very, very important to match men to jobs, and you'll have to subsidise the job. There's no use saying to industry, you have to take uh, you know, 121-year-olds. You have to then say, right, we'll give you... Uh, a certain subsidy. Well, that's in the Labour manifesto, not yeah. for people who've been in the army, but anybody who's been out of a job for a certain amount of period is going to get a government job. Yeah, but, but it's going to be like the old days of sort of working on, not on the chain gang, building something. railway There's lines. There's no incentive for them to find jobs. Listen, I should get more money on the door. Hang on, I was telling you something. I was talking the other day to a guy who was back from Afghanistan, and um, he's, he's, you know, he's gone back to his uh, regiment. And I said, what is the effect on you as an individual, he said, well, it'd be nice to say as a soldier, you know, I, I can handle this, and I mm. probably can. He said, but when you see your mate, you know he's dead or dying alongside mm. you. You can then begin to understand the traumatic effect on some of the youngsters especially, and the older NCOs mm. even. When they come back, they slip into society, and society said, oh, where have you been for the last six months? And the trouble is, as the Americans <coughs> found after Vietnam, yeah. that we're talking about Afghanistan, but it wasn't very long ago we were talking about Iraq, and that war was not popular. They were finding, if you raised it, that they'd been there. They weren't universally popular with the people at home. Yeah, quick, Martin, because I want to go to the States. The same thing happened to Russians coming back from the Afghan war. When they left in 1989, uh, the average Russian, did, uh, because it was an unpopular war, they didn't want to know. A disabled soldier was put on the second floor. And the average person, the average Russian, the average official couldn't care less. In other words, the military... And no lifts on the second floor, no not lifts. in Russian homes. The, the Russians, for the first time since 1945, regarded the Afghan war as a no war, uh, if you like, illegitimate war. And those who came back were just... Were just it was their fault almost. It was taking yeah. part in yeah. something. Yeah. Why were Listen, you let's go to the States, because I was wondering, and we really ought to have been talking about the um, nuclear security conference in, in, in America... Uh, this week, and I thought, no, we, no, we're not going to do that. Um, no one expected very much. I think they got far more than uh, they expected out of it. But what I was thinking about, what about that vision thing? Because that's somehow what this was about, this conference. It's saying, let us take this idea that we can actually go and find fissile materials that could, if necessary, be taken by terrorist groups and built into something else. Did you know, for example, um, about 30 kilograms, that's the size of a big melon, is enough, as long as you've got the technology, enough to make yourself a, a bomb. Um, the vision well, we've all thing. seen Freddie Forsyth's film, The yeah. Protocol. Yeah. Well, some of us have. Yeah, some of us can't afford it. Uh, on the line, anyway, from the University of Southern Utah, where his professor of politics, Michael Stathis, Michael, I think I know what I mean by the vision thing. That's the big idea that's often missing when presidents and prime ministers spend most of their time in office doing damage limitation. Is that about right? 
Well, this week's uh, nuclear security summit in Washington uh, certainly suggested uh, a big idea. And, of course, as you've uh, just noted, the, uh, the idea of uh, uh, controlling nuclear weapons or at least uh, some of the means uh, to, uh, to, to make them. And uh, it confirmed that uh, this is a president that uh, uh, very often exhibits uh, a sense of vision. Um, and... Uh, visions of uh, very, very big and very, very grand plans. But the meeting turned to some other more immediate things, too. Um, and uh, <coughs> it was almost as if, uh, you know, the president set the, the grand stage uh, for the purpose of dealing with some more immediate and focused concerns, particularly with the Russian Federation and China, um, and particular uh, individual meetings uh, with uh, uh, with uh, the presidents of uh, of those countries uh, talking about possible sanctions with Iran and some other things um, seem to have done um, uh, really pretty well. But it's also true, isn't it? I mean, we're going through a general election here, so everybody recognizes that um, the thing that wins elections is somebody turning around like Bill Clinton, it's the economy stupid. Slogans win elections, um, but not necessarily, so therefore big ideas. The fact that there is a, a, a bilateral meeting in the corridor that fixes another problem around the world, most of us don't know, and in fact we've heard of them all before. What we don't get is this big thing, is this idea that... I know you're, you're always quoting your men... Uh, <laughs> Thucydides. <laughs> Thucydides, you know. Um, foresight based on accumulated knowledge and experience. But where do you get it from? It uh, well as the definition uh, from uh, uh, that old Greek uh, uh, portends. Which old it, Greek? It's something that Thucydides, is gained yes. from um, uh, uh, accumulated knowledge and uh, an experience. Prognosis. And every day in office, uh, uh, Obama, I think, uh, gains a little bit more uh, knowledge and a, a good deal more uh, experience. Whether he has prognosis, this vision thing, uh, this ability to uh, 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 portend uh, events. That, uh, that are coming. Uh, not quite clear yet, but there's no doubt that this guy is a, uh, has a wealth of, uh, of, of very great ideas. It's going to be the practicality of putting them into effect that's going to be the trick, of course. And the other thing, of course, is that we, we lived after the, or, or the, the Western nations lived after World War II in a Cold War. And there wasn't much opportunity for the vision thing, the big ideas, because there were set agendas which you had to simply cope with every day. And uh, part of that is true today, too. During the Cold War, of course, the immediate agenda was national security in the face of uh, 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 a potential Soviet threat. Uh, today, uh, of course, the immediate uh, uh, problems, the economy, um, uh, the war in Afghanistan, um, the situation in Iraq. Uh, uh, so that sometimes, uh, and, and it's very clear, sometimes the American people get very tired of uh, hearing uh, the vision thing, and uh, uh, they want to see something more in the way of, uh, of nuts and bolts. Case in point, um, this week uh, we have evidence that uh, President Obama has uh, um, a drop to his lowest uh, job approval rating. Uh, it's 40, down to 49%. Mm. Now, that doesn't look good if you're actually um, trying to hang on to your uh, Senate majority in November. 
Uh, possibly not. Uh, but uh, as I read in the New York Times this morning, uh, uh, there's still an awful long time between April and November. And uh, many things can happen, and well, it could get worse, of course. Um, but uh, other things, uh, you know, uh, could come into to, to, to play as well. Um, today in Sydney, uh, for instance, uh, Obama again affirmed uh, the beginning of a U.S. pullout from Afghanistan in 2011. And uh, if that tendency continues, that's going to gain big points uh, come fall. Michael Stathis, thank you very much indeed. Martin McCauley. Uh, Michael, before you go, Martin McCauley. Uh, yes. I know what President Obama's big vision thing is. Go on. It is, how do we stop China taking over the world in 20 years' time? Uh, and that is his obsession. Well, That's the obsession of every American. And I believe that Hu Jintao had just been in Washington. And the president Hu, of China. If Hu Jintao goes to Washington, it's very important. And he's been very cuddly uh, and saying nice things. And uh, Obama's been patting him on the back saying, we're great mates and so on. Uh, that is the vision thing. Well, and I think Obama showed uh, some uh, pragmatic skills this week. Um, I think he was very tempted to pull him aside and talk about uh, currency issues uh, uh, that are a big deal uh, with Washington. Uh, and he avoided that, uh, basically focusing on uh, other things and uh, came away, um, for some, amazingly, with um, a, a certain degree of uh, the promise of support in in terms of dealing with uh, uh, nuclear uh, weapons production or the potential for it in, in Iran. And um, uh, quite frankly, um, most people felt that uh, uh, nothing would have uh, come from China in, in, in that regard. Um, Obama may have scored a point here. All right. Okay, Professor, you can go now. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Can I just speak a quick point yes. about the uh, the Iran uh, uh, and about this meeting and this vision. It may be a great vision, but I mean, it was like Hamlet without the princes. First, the Israeli prime minister refused to go. Then we find out Iran wasn't there and North Korea wasn't there, the most dangerous states. And now we find out today from Russia that Iran's going to be opening its nuclear reactor at Bushware in August. A firm date has been given. So, I mean, you know, uh, there may have been a lot of rather grand gestures meetings in corridors but the net result in hard terms has been to go backwards if the Iranians are now going to be rattling ahead with their new reactor. And my immediate reaction to when Obama was saying oh, the greatest threat to the United States is some kind of terrorist nuclear attack, well perhaps, although my, I must admit, Up I don't think point, it Lord is. Uh, well hang on, hang, hang on about that. If you're an American your image wasn't that 3,000 people plus or whatever it was died in New York. It was the fact that people could drive a couple of aeroplanes into, into skyscrapers. Of course, yes, and of course, and 3,000. But of course, the Americans aren't used to that kind of thing like we Europeans are. But the uh, to that kind to those kinds I mean, of casualties. I don't think it was the casualty thing. It, it was, was the suddenness of it too. If you exactly. Those newsreels. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's the symbolism. Yes, but 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 it but it all depends what you what you mean by by the greatest threat. I mean there there is still a possibility, admittedly not very great at the moment, but still there, of, a, of, of some kind of conflict between the United States and, a, and another nuclear power. And then that could be quite serious, actually, if quite significant numbers of nuclear weapons started flying around. Also, of course, what everybody misses out, 
and I hate to introduce a large topic at this stage, is that we're talking about 20 or 30 years' time. Remember that artificial intelligence is going to be developing quite significantly. The Chinese might start using it, but even in, in more general terms, people talk about the singularity in the 2020s or the 2030s. Nobody talks about it. Imagine machines that can outthink us. That is going to be the real challenge of the 21st century. I thought that was Sudoku, actually. <laughs> it certainly does it with me. But you're absolutely, I mustn't, yeah. mustn't joke about that. We are looking for the vision thing with 2010 vision when we really ought to be at least 2020, 2030. If you look at the Strategic Defence Review, the concept of it, which later this year we'll start on, it's looking to what it calls the art years. It's looking to 2040 not looking in our little parochial sort of world. But hasn't that whole vision thing, though, you know, since the phrase was sort of first coined, really been undermined... George Herbert Walker Bush. Bush yes, number the 41, yes, as the US president goes. But was, wasn't it undermined by the credit crunch? I mean, you can't start having vision things when the entire edifice of capitalism appears about well, that's to my, collapse. Christopher, mm. that's my point that we don't get vision things because modern presidents, modern prime ministers spend most of their time on damage limitation, yeah. crisis management. And we don't have I know Mr. Sort of Brown did tell the parliaments with a slip of the tongue that he had saved the world, but uh, that got him more laughter than it did plaudits because he did, I don't think, really meant it, though he might have meant it, he didn't mean to say it. Come on, nobody will remember that on May the 6th. There's a difference here between Europeans and Americans. Yes. Americans are idealists. And if you talk about saving the world and doing the best for the world, everybody applauds you. If somebody, sta- President Sarkozy or Angela Merkel stands up or Berlusconi stands up and says, I'm going to save the world, everybody falls apart laughing. <laughs> right. Europeans are cynics. Europeans don't want the vision thing. They want to leave us alone because we've had Hitler, we've had Napoleon and all the others. We've had enough of that. I want to move on, but I'll give you one thought. The Americans, as far as I remember, are the only people that nationally actually have the vision thing as part of their lifestyle, and that is called the American dream. It is po- everything is possible. Yes, we can. Listen, any other business I would put this down under. Martin, Kyrgyzstan, a failing state, seems to be getting things straight, and the, uh, um, the boss is on the run at the moment. But people are saying, including your lot in Moscow, that this is a honeypot for worker terrorists to sort of swarm on. Yes, what they're really afraid of, and one can say uh, President Bakiev, or should he be called ex-President Bakiev, he took a $2 billion loan from the, from the Russians to get rid of the American base at Manas, uh, and then he turns around to the Americans and said, give us another $60 million and you can have it for another year. So the Russians became rather annoyed. And Bakiev was brought in five years ago to clear up corruption and so on. And what is he? He's even more corrupt and into nepotism than the previous Akayev president. So therefore... Uh, poli- the political class has, has totally failed. Nobody knows how to govern Kyrgyzstan. So the danger now is... Oh, to be fair, never have done either. Never have mm. done. And it was run from Moscow. And it's pathetic to have to say that Kyrgyzstan, under Soviet rule, was well run. Uh, and uh, was, in fact, not... The, the level of criminality and so on was very, very low. Uh, and it's a terrible thing to say that the demise of the Soviet Union... Uh, may have been one of the worst things that could have hit Kyrgyzstan. But anyway, the danger is that the Taliban and others will get in from uh, Pakistan and um, um, 
Afghanistan and penetrate Tajikistan because it's very mountainous and so on. It's very, very difficult to control all the... There are Russians, actually, uh, who are on the border and so on, but you can't really control that. They would get into Kyrgyzstan. And we're not going to go in now chasing after them. No, 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 we're not going to. But the key factor here is the Chinese. What are the Chinese going to do? Because they're very concerned about Islamic uh, fundamentalism in Xinjiang, which borders in Kyrgyzstan. And China doesn't really have good, much relations with Kyrgyzstan because they haven't got anything. You know, they haven't got oil and gas. They've got gold, a little bit of gold and so on. So the key question is, what will the Chinese do here? And I suspect that the Chinese, through the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, uh, that they would come with the Russians and say, we have to police this state, uh, this place. Otherwise, it's going to be, as you say, a terrorist net. That's a fascinating concept, but isn't also it? Also, it's, it's quite symbolic in that, don't forget, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we, we had three coloured so revolutions. 1991 for this. Yes, coloured revolutions. <coughs> we had the yes. orange in Ukraine, we had the rose in Georgia, and we had the tulip in Kyrgyzstan. And all three and, have failed. Uh, yeah, well, one still staggering onwards and that's uh, Georgia but uh, uh, he's still uh, in power but the other two have failed and uh, I guess the Kremlin is rattling with laughter Well I can that. think of only two revolutions that have actually kept going, one is China and the other is Cuba no, but these were democratic revolutions, the point of them. They were supposed to be switching from communism to <coughs> democracy. In Never works. No, no, the, the problem was it was switching from a corrupt a Kiev government to one which said it was going to be uh, uncorrupt mm. and uh, opposed corruption. And it became more corrupt because it got money from the Americans, got money from the Russians, mm. and the family kept the money themselves. And there was $80 million left in the coffers when the new people took over. On, yeah, it's not um, much to try and run a, a country, is it? Well, Mr. Brown might like a loan of it, but... We have $167 billion exactly. deficit, so that shows you... <coughs> Sterling, Sterling. Yes. Sterling, not billion. Uh, not Sorry, billion. Sterling. Yeah, yeah, that's real. Well, they're almost equal. In the well, the Americans yeah, so. are into trillions, aren't they now? That's really great, eh? <laughs> Trillions, and, and Starbucks yes. keeps going. <laughs> OK, um, something else. I noticed the Americans have uh, this week closed down the Korangal outpost in Afghanistan. The last American soldier left on Wednesday. I think they're calling this Christopher Walker Death Valley. There's never enough soldiers to crush the insurgency after four years of trying. The Americans saying, you know, we shouldn't have done it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's a very honest, honest admission, but terrible for those soldiers. 47, by the way, lost their lives there. Uh, that have lost their lives fighting for it when they realise it's... Uh, they, they throw their hand up and say, it's a hopeless cause. This is, only, this is the fourth separate one of these sort of outposts in the eastern part of the country that are being closed down by McChrystal and uh, there was a very interesting report in the New York Times today which said this was really uh, a first foreboding that well, there's going to be a withdrawal. I mean if you can't if you're starting to say you can't win parts of a war, the whole war comes under a severe question. And yeah, Pakistanis are getting very worried about this too actually because it's just over the border mm. and they feel that they're doing as relatively well against the Taliban on their side of the border but then they can just run across and now this is an area where there aren't Americans operating. In fact, I think a Pakistani commander in the last 24 or 36 hours has, has expressed great concern about this. Yeah, apparently they're going to uh, have um, some kind of an outpost at one of the ends of the pass. But, I mean, let's, let's put this in some perspective, yeah. and that is historically, come on, we've got sort of 96 historians in this place yeah. at the moment, well, 96 different opinions. <laughs> um, Eric Grove, um, historically, wars, um, this does happen. 
you know, you, you take somebody, something and then you have to withdraw because you, it, it's no longer of a value that you thought it was going that to be. That is true, and, and, and clearly McChrystal, who's an intelligent guy, he thinks that the resources Stanley, are better... General Stanley McChrystal, yes, are, the commander. ...are better invested mm. elsewhere, and I'm sure that's correct. After all, we live with the northwest frontier for a very long time in that, in, in that very same area. It's just a natural, disordered frontier, and one has to learn to live with it, I fear. Mm. Yeah. But think of the treasure and the blood that's been spent keeping it. Why have they suddenly realised now? Because everyone make, makes mistakes and at least they recognise they have done. Yes, right, that's I, true. Let mm. me quote General McChrystal. He says, the battle changes, the war changes. If you don't understand the dynamics, you have no chance of getting it right. We've been slower here than I would have liked. That's quite, Martin McCauley, that's quite admission, isn't it? That, but that, you, you can compliment him for saying that. He admits he's made a mistake. Now, it's very, very important in decision-making. But we like lucky generals, don't we, as yeah. Napoleon said? Uh, um, because he can take over from somebody else. Who was it, Petraeus, who was there before? Um, you know, Gaius Petraeus, who was seen as the great uh, Caesar. Well, he's the, the overall commander. The great general yeah. and so on. But Crystal comes in, and obviously he's got a carte blanche. You can change things, and he has done. And if he keeps on like this, uh, he might find a solution. OK, um, it's... Good gracious me, we are late. It's 39 minutes past the hour. It, and uh, you're listening to SITREP with me, Christopher Lee, and if you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme simply by going into SITREP at bfbs.com and clicking on Listen Again. With me at the SITREP Roundtable from the University of Salford, the head of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies, Professor Eric Grove from Global Radio News, their Chief Foreign Correspondent, Christopher Walker, and from uh, University College London, the Global Affairs Analyst at that place, Dr. Martin McCauley. Um, Christopher Walker, Israel's, Israelis have urge, uh, issued an urgent warning to its citizens to leave Sinai in Egypt. I mean, A, what are they doing in Sinai and why have they, uh, why have they uh, issued this order, do you think? Well, they love holidaying there. They've just had the Passover holiday and thousands of them were there and a few hundred uh, are left because they found it a very attractive uh, place to holiday and much nicer than some of their own beaches. It's remarkable considering they spent 40 days and 40 nights getting out of <laughs> Yes, that's quite true. But uh, it's become a very, very top uh, place to visit but the government's constantly worried and there seems to have been very hard intelligence. That the, in fact, there was even a rumour that an Israel Israeli had been kidnapped. So it's a kidnap um, threat they're worried yes, about. They're kid- By whom? Uh, by Hamas, probably. So and then they sell them into Hamas. And in, then they're going to smuggle Gaza. them back into Gaza, <laughs> hold them where they already hold an Israeli soldier who is uh, being used as a bargaining chip constantly. And I must say, I've been there, you know, many times myself. I was actually there when they when they left, but I can't remember such a, a strong warning as this. They're often saying, "Be on your guard, be on attention," and such like. And there was a big uh, bomb attack on one of the hotels. Uh, uh, not too long ago. 2005? Yes, yeah. I think it was. But this one is the strictest call that one's ever seen. Yeah, and they've even gone round chasing up the families in Israel who might have a relative there to try and make sure that they get the message to them. Because a lot of Israelis camp and such like there and aren't necessarily glued to the television right. or radio. And they have their own single-minded sort of uh, reasons for being there and they don't take much notice of authority anyway, do they? Well, not really. Not no. really, not really. It depends <laughs> where they come from. Yeah. Martin, let's go on to... Um, I noticed President Obama will be going to the funeral of the <coughs> Polish president, uh, Lech Kaczynski. He was killed in an air crash in Western Russia on Saturday. Funerals on Sunday in Krakow. Um, the other thing is interesting is that the Russians, the French and the German leaders are going to be there, or due to be there. <coughs> We're back to what Michael 
uh, Stathos was saying earlier, the bureau business is done in the margins, even at funerals. Mm. But unfortunately, it's going to be very highly controversial because he's going to be buried in Krakow, where only kings and presidents and heroes uh, are buried. The, past, the last president was Pilsudski, who was the dictator in between the wars. Uh, and a lot of Poles don't like Kaczynski because he's too right-wing. And there's a, a massive campaign to stop the uh, uh, the funeral going ahead, which is very unfortunate. But it's very, very important. For instance, uh, Putin, I don't know who's going to represent the Soviet Union. Technically, it should be President Medvedev. Russia. Sorry. We said the Soviet Union. Freudian yes. slip. Freudian yes. slip. I'm still thinking of the empire. <laughs> yes. uh, is it Putin or Medvedev? It should actually be Putin. Putin. If Putin and Medvedev come, that will be a step forward. And the fact that Obama is actually going there underlines the importance of Poland to NATO and to the Western world. And the Polish foreign minister, mm. Radish Sikorsky, he's doing his best to heal the wounds of the Polish-Russian relationship, which left Kaczynski, you have to say this, uh, de morto is nilnis bonum. You only say, speak well yeah. of the dead. But unfortunately, I've got to criticise Kaczynski because he did his best to, in fact, introduce venom uh, in Russo-Polish relations. And hopefully that period's gone and Sikorsky and the government will, in fact, uh, uh, and Putin and Medvedev, introduce good relations. Right. Good relations. Right on cue. Um, about Russia anyway, because NATO is reviewing its new strategic concept. You know, we talked about this last autumn. But it includes, crucially, the 20-year relationship with Russia, no longer the USSR or the Soviet Union. Um, the recent bilateral meetings between Presidents Obama and Medvedev remind us that NATO, and therefore its member states, have to have a position on Russia. Sounds simple, but it isn't, is it? Uh, Eric Grove, there's too much baggage here, isn't there, in, in the sort of generations that are running these different Very countries? Very much so. I mean, I mean, NATO was created to keep the Soviet Union, and, and, and as Martin just said, it's often hard to differentiate in one's mind between the Soviet Union of the past and the Russia of today. Um, but it was uh, Pogismi, wasn't it? Keep the Soviet Union out. The Soviets the Soviet out, the Americans in. in, and the Germans, and the Germans down. down. Yeah, that's right. Now, well, let's forget now, the Germans yeah. on this. Now, I think also, though, it must be said that many Many people in Russia view NATO as an enemy as well. Was it last poll? 11% thought we might go to war. Yes, and have been deeply concerned about the spread of NATO eastwards. Gorbachev keeps on going on about how he was told NATO would not spread eastwards, but NATO has. So there is a perception of threat on the Can Russian side interrupt? as Gorbachev, well. Gorbachev, for those who can't remember, was, was, the, uh, was the first the Soviet leader. Was the last Soviet the leader. Last uh, Soviet who destroyed leader. the Soviet Union. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. he did. Uh, much to the, uh, the delight anyway, of the West. Go on, Martin. But there, is, but, there is still, but there is still unfinished business as far as the Baltic states concerned. Very large Russian minorities outside mm. Russia. And we have the same kind of situation that we had in the interwar period, which was not a stable period. So therefore, I think there is a lot of unfinished business here. The, okay. the Russians make the point, which is perhaps valid, that NATO was set up to keep the Soviet Union down and the Soviet Union was seen as a threat, an existential threat to the West, and it declared itself as a world empire. But since the Russia is now a democratic state, and they would maintain it is a democratic state, and part of Europe, and part of the civilised world, why on earth do you need NATO? Uh, you don't need that anymore. Uh, Europe should come together, the whole of Europe should come together and have a security network, a security agreement, which will guarantee but all, that is all simply European re states. Cre create a new NATO, wouldn't you? Would you? The most important thing about NATO is not the Europeans, but the fact you've got the Americans in. Yes, but the Russians want, the, the, Americans, the, Russians want the Americans out. Because they that wouldn't be NATO then, would it? No. Yeah, the Russians don't want the Americans out. That's nonsense, no, Martin. They want the Americans out. Tell me I'm wrong. Because the Americans are seen as, if you like, the expansionist power. 
yeah. and they're seen as trying to get into the former, former territory of the Soviet Union. But the old Soviet Union, they, I always thought they feared the Germans far more than they did the Americans. Mm. No longer. Uh, but uh, the Russians, if you look at Medvedev, he's, he mollifies his language. Putin is aggressive. So therefore the distinction between Putin and Medvedev. Putin sees the United States as the enemy and NATO as the enemy. Medvedev is much softer. I think uh, we've um, actually underestimated the importance of this death, tragic as it was. It is going to possibly open the way for getting Poland and Russia uh, into rapprochement. It's very interesting that Mr Putin himself took over the investigation of the crash and twice on Russian television they've shown the famous Polish film on the Katyn massacre. Which I never yeah. thought they would show it. No. That's and the first time it was shown it was only on a cultural channel that very few people watch. The second one was what we call peak <coughs> viewing and they've estimated that perhaps 30 million people saw it. And, and that, that was Putin's own initiative. Let me give you a quick story. Mm. I actually went to a, a, a dacha outside of Moscow where a friend then we were shown this film. Uh, they had a, a copy of it. Someone was on guard for the KGB. Well, almost. Well, he was KGB. But I mean, the whole point <laughs> was, he, he said, um, well, you, I think you know who he is, or was. And he said, uh, there is no need to mention that you've seen this. And that was the, was the it, it, it's, it's rather like, uh, what is the uh, Grossman's, uh, Vasily Grossman's book, uh, uh, Life and Fate? Mm. And then you had Soslov saying to him, this will not be, show, uh, be, be published for two or three hundred years. And of course, 30 years later, it is being published. Mm. Now, what you're saying is that this film was so threatening to the whole idea of mm. the old Soviet Le uh, mm. Union and what it did. How many, yeah. how many died? Yeah. 22,000. 22, well, actually, no, 22,000 no, no. in total, but in Katyn. No, we're talking about Katyn Massacre, which was the creme, yeah. the creme de la creme of Polish society, and the story was the Nazis did it, but, of course, it was the Soviet secret police. They were killing 250 to 300 thing, a night. Yeah, the important thing about the right. film being shown on Russian television is it introduces the problem for the first time to the average Russian. And who knows where the shockwaves will lead, because some Russians think this is the beginning of the re-examination, if you like, or the examination for the first time of the Stalin legacy. If, this, if Stalin did that to the Poles, did what did he do to us Russians? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we're back to life and fate, yeah. and what was the other one, victims and heroes, is the re rerunning of Tolstoy. Listen, I wanna, we, we haven't got much time, we've only got 11 and a half minutes going. Um, we're still in the uh, general election in, in, back here in the United Kingdom. There are very strict guidelines governing media and government relations. There's a particularly important when we consider the position of defence in the election, of course, when there's a war on. The Cabinet Office has issued the guidelines, and the media analyst, Rupert Nickel, who trains both Royal Navy and NATO forces in media handling, has been looking at the election issues and the rules and regulations. Uh, Rupert Nicholas Withers. Well, look, I mean, we ought to make clear, apart from training RN and NATO in media relations, say that as Lieutenant Commander Nicol, you were naval officer handling the press in the Falklands in Gulf War One and Kosovo? Yes. Yeah. So what do you make of this lot? Is it restrictive? Well, it's pretty sensible, really. Um, there are th three things are currently permitted. Um, one is uh, pr uh, press releases, um, the, it says, where possible, they should provide factual information by reference to published material. 
Equally, there would be no objection to re- issuing routine factual publications. And What does that mean? So, like, soldier or...? Well, yes, as far as the military is concerned, all kinds of things, health advice, normal things that departments produce anyway. So not apolitical? Absolutely. A- apolitical. Uh, previously published material can stand, but it mustn't be revised or updated. So could you, for example, do recruiting figures? I you guess so, yes, because, yes, because they're, they're, part, they're part of a normal What about uh, Afga- uh, the war in Afghanistan, news about that? Well, I mean, that news is continuing anyway, so as, as far as I can see, um, if, there's, if there's an issue, ministers are allowed to respond to it, but um, they must, they must, the, the issue is what is political and what is ministerial. See, it's interesting because, uh, again, coming back to this BFBS uh, news um, debate yesterday, what we, um, what we heard was, in one section, was which government would provide the right equipment uh, and the equipment people needed. And you remember there was a thing about um, the wrong vehicles being used or yes. not efficient. <clears throat> the government announced um, this week, it was a press release, and the government announced about uh, the order for some new types of vehicles. Yes. That would seem to me to be overtly political because it destroys part of the opposition ar- uh, argument that they're not doing enough. But it is an ongoing issue, this one, and the question of where they come from or who's to make them. It does say here, uh, where a minister considers it necessary to hold a press conference on a subject of particular subject of immediate importance, then clearly his or her department must provide facilities and give guidance. Yeah. So it is possible to step into an existing argument. See, there's another side of this, isn't there, that, that um, as I was saying earlier, the Secretary of State remains the Secretary of State. Yes. Um, whereas, as from, I think, last Monday... Um, MPs are no longer MPs. Mm. Now, there's a section in that cabinet guidance, I know, that you can't send press releases, so for information for the debate, to MPs, because there ain't any. Yes. But it also means you can't send them to people who want to be MPs so that they can debate uh, on, on the stump. They can debate what they want to do as far as the defence debate is concerned, which I keep banging on. In fact, it's not big enough. Yes, I mean, basically, press releases and other material sent to members of Parliament should cease on the dissolution, it says, and statements or comments referring to policies, commitments or intentions of opposition parties should not be handled. So it's, they're definitely trying to limit things. Remember, people are meant to be electioneering, is, is the answer. Yes. The MPs and the opposition. Well, they're always doing that anyway, aren't they? Well, I suppose so. Yeah. But, but, I mean, the other thing I found fascinating, there was even, gui- even guidelines in there about Twitter. Yes, this I'm is blocking. I mean, this is for the first time. It's never happened. Well, Twitter didn't exist at the last election. It says, uh, yes, um, social network sites. Civil servants' participation in social networks, Facebook, BBB, LinkedIn, uh, should be limited during the election period to commenting on, on operational matters. There's a special section on Twitter. Use of Twitter may continue for publish, publishing factual information only, uh, in line with guidance on news media. So they're really looking forward here. If, you, if you're wondering why uh, Rupert Nickel keeps uh, disappearing from us almost, <laughs> he's got the whole cabinet uh, document here and it's spread out. It's it, it, it spread out like a history lesson. Um, <laughs> it says there should be no new public-facing or ministerial blogs during this period. Yeah, but um, it is fascinating that, therefore, the power that we now see in, for example, blogging um, and Twitter and Facebook, which last time 
wasn't there, was it? Didn't exist, yes. Uh, Didn't at all. And the email, uh, the time before that, the email was hardly important in a general election. And we're coming back to something you were talking about, Eric Grove. Technological change. How things have changed and how you have to... And how rapidly they're changing. Absolutely right. Things are changing exponentially rapidly. And I don't think we realise that. Can I come back, uh, Rupert? Mm. Um, Somebody who's trained, uh, especially the Navy, who sometimes... bit slow to catch on to the importance of, of the media. How will this affect uh, service people in what they can say and cannot say? Well, the individual serviceman, of course, who's been blogging and twittering and sending messages and acting as his own press correspondent may not even realise, you know, whether, whether he should or shouldn't. I don't know what, um, what instructions have been given at the front line, but certainly the, ge- the general um, uh, involvement of the military with IT... Is, is growing and continuing. And what happens, for example, an exercise going on at the moment, a naval exercise going on at the moment? Uh, what happens there uh, when you want to play the media and you're getting, getting quizzed or, or ratings or, or officers are getting quizzed? Um, how do they react? Do they have to be aware, or is it all in isolation? Oh, yes, it's all in isolation. They're not even pretty, at the moment. They're more worried about volcanic ash and the total cessation of all flying throughout Scandinavia, Germany, and Scotland, right. which is affecting two exercises. Well, it says banning flying because you haven't got enough fuel, don't you? <laughs> yes. um, and the uh, talking about the election is that you know for the first time um, in a British general election, the leaders of the three largest UK parties are taking part in live debates on television and radio, of course. Um, BFBS Radio 2 joins BBC Radio 4 tonight at uh, 8pm UK time to broadcast the whole of the first debate, which is on domestic uh, affairs. That's the irony, though, isn't it? What? In this twittering age, it's going to be the TV debate, the good old steam TV that's going to dominate, not Twitter or blog or whatever. Well, you know why? you, You can see them wince. You can see them twitch. Yeah, no, you can see them is. Twitter. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's most appropriate that the whole thing is called, is called Twitter anyway. I, I don't know, because if you look at the Obama election um, mm. two years ago, or 18 months ago, it was the first time that the media, emails and so on, played a decisive role, a very important role, and the Obama people used it, and it hasn't yet emerged in this country. Yeah. I tell not you what, yet. they're not uh, on, on the Twitter, etc. I can't see Eric Grove's name. Um... um <laughs> Eric, one of the reasons... I gather able... there's a Facebook site which my students have put on called the Eric Grove Fan Club. Oh. Fang? <laughs> fan. Oh, fan. <laughs> fan right. club. Listen, uh, well, I may uh, have fangs in the picture, I don't know. Right, but, uh, what they used to be. Electronically um, enhanced, yes. In London, really, um, for the Royal United Services Institute lecture, uh, Norway Combined Ops. Um, yes, that's joint operation. Yeah, tell us about it quickly. It was a major Allied fiasco, when? actually, in, 19, in April 1940. In fact, on this very day... Uh, April 15th in 1940, the two British commanders recently appointed General Maxey and the wonderfully named Admiral of the Fleet, the Earl of Cork and Orrery, uh, met and found that they'd been given totally different orders by their separate service ministries, which really sets the scene for the whole thing. Here we have a joint operation, including land, sea and air, and the air air power was pretty decisive, particularly on the German side, and we didn't have joint command, and it's a classic example of how not to do it. And one hopes lessons, well, certain lessons were learnt, and one hopes that we don't look at the modern period and look back at exactly exactly the same lessons. It's, it, it's the kind of campaign where everything goes wrong. One poor territorial battalion was disembarked from one set of ships, then disembarked from another set of ships. In each disembarkation they lost material. They were then sent to an area where the Germans had complete air superiority and they broke up in, um, in disorder. And it was hardly surprising that that should happen. It was the, exactly 
how not to operate. And the Germans were at that time better, and they deserve to win, I'm sorry to say. I sometimes wonder how we won this war. Well, the help of the Russians and the Americans. Yes, oh. yes. So we're back to the... Hang on, we're back to the story we were doing a couple of minutes ago. NATO has got to hang together, Martin, yeah. um, because you've got to bring on the Russians still, because you might need them later on. You, you might need them. But uh, the, the Germans got wind of the operation. So if uh, the book... It which, was preemptive war, which, yes. Which Eric is waving at us is the preemptive war. If you like the first preemptive war... It's not Eric's book, by the way. It is... I didn't write it, but it is my own one, actually. Yes. <laughs> preemptive war. And, of course, um, the Russians would say that on the 22nd of June, 1941, there should have been a preemptive strike against uh, the Germans. Listen, we've got about a minute. Mm. Do we know much about our military history to make any sense when we're thinking about general elections, when we're thinking about Afghanistan, etc.? Well, we don't seem to have learnt any lessons from Afghanistan, do we? Colonel yeah. uh, yes. keep quoting Afghanistan. I think they're reading their history, and the military steamroller, Roberts's idea, was quoted uh, last year, I remember. Yeah. So we do, but do we learn? Or do we learn anything? We, Eric, ignore, you're the historian. We, we ignore history at our peril because it's the only experience we've got. And quite often <laughs> we ignore it because we want to ignore it because yes. it's, it's going to come up with inconvenient answers and inconvenient truths. But you told us that the next war will be in space, cyberspace and high technology and so on. And more will involve. You didn't say it would be in. We haven't had anything like that, so therefore looking backwards is very, very dangerous. Ah, uh, no, because if we look backwards and see how a new technology, in this case air power, affected things, it demonstrates that we have to pay due regard for technology. Well, we're news. fighting right. a man who lives in a cave but has full mastery of IT. Yes. And what? Well... <laughs> Obama, uh, not Obama, not Obama. Okay, it could be Osama. Come on, Osama. I've had enough of this one. Going. Uh, that's it for this week. My thanks to Martin McCauley, to Rupert Nichol, uh, Christopher Walker, and to Eric Grove. We'll be back here at the same time next week on BFBS Radio Two at four o'clock UK time. Until then, I'm Christopher Lee and Mary. Mary's in the hut. with Christopher Lee.